From the Financial Times in London, I'm Tom Burgess and this is FT Investigations. Is ISIS winning the cyber war against the West? Omar Mateen, who slaughtered 49 clubbers in Orlando in early June, appears to have been only the latest author of an atrocity in the West to have been inspired by online jihadis. We're going to be talking today about the West's efforts to fight back against Islamist extremism in cyberspace and also more broadly about what the Orlando shooting tells us or perhaps what it doesn't tell us about what makes a terrorist. I'm joined on the line by two esteemed FT correspondents. From New York, we've got Kara Scannell, the investigations correspondent. And from Beirut, we have our Middle East correspondent, Erica Solomon. Hello to both of you. First of all, Kara, you've been writing about the ISIS online propaganda operation and the US attempt to fight back with its own propaganda operation. Tell us a little bit about that. What form does the ISIS online operation take? You've been writing about them using everything from Western sex scandals to kittens. What's the feel for this operation that you've got? It appears that ISIS is pretty effective at reaching and tapping into sort of these lost people throughout America, those who feel they don't fit in or are somehow vulnerable. And people who have studied the videos, the Twitter outreach that ISIS and ISIS sympathizers are doing here are finding that this is American-style movie studio production. They're very slick, they're fast-paced, there's music, there's graphics. They use kittens to try to reach some people. They use this appeal of if you're a single woman, come over and, you know, you can marry one of the ISIS soldiers. They show ISIS soldiers in the hospital. So they give a whole range of different ways to tap into people, including the more graphic stuff, such as the beheadings and the more the violent side. And what people have found, and the FBI director, James Comey, has called it a devil on their shoulder because it's reaching people through their phones. So if anyone is having these thoughts, they can easily find something that appeals to them if they're kind of in that direction. And so what the Justice Department is trying to do, in addition to the military strikes and economic sanctions, is that they're trying to fight back using the same techniques. So they've had some meetings with people from Madison Avenue, from Silicon Valley, and from Hollywood. The government wants them to know just how effective and sophisticated the ISIS propaganda is in trying to encourage these other companies that kind of touch this space to try to come up with some way to offer a counter message to not necessarily say America is great, but to perhaps show that there are other things that's appealing and ISIS is not the road that you should take. That seems a sensible response, doesn't it, in many ways? But it seems a tall order to, on this front anyway, beat ISIS at its own game. I mean, clearly that ISIS online propaganda is deeply resonant to some people in some parts of the world. Do you have much sense from your reporting of whether the government countermeasures would be effective in any way? I mean, I think that is the big question because they can't come out with something that seems like it's done by the government or that may drive people in the opposite direction. So I think that's why they're trying to keep it somewhat arm's length. They want the, as they're calling it, the Madison Valleywood side of the equation to see if there are things that they can do on their own. Also, there was one meeting earlier this year that was kind of the big powwow that got this going. That was in February. There's been continuing discussions. There's not necessarily supposed to be some 
end plan. It's more of trying to put this reality in people's minds. And to some extent, there is this greater tension with Silicon Valley between the government and them with encryption and other things. There's just much more distrust post Edward Snowden's revelations. A little bit of this, though, is to put some pressure on them also to not give ISIS as much leeway online. And you've seen with Twitter, they suspended 125,000 ISIS-related accounts in February. So there's a little bit of that pressure, too. Of course, the tech companies don't want to be censored by the government in any way, and they don't feel like they should have to censor necessarily their users. So you know, this is not going to be a quick fix or even a very obvious outcome, but I think the goal is to try to inform all these different other industries about maybe a role they could play. But Kara, first, and then I'll ask this of you, Erica, as well. To what extent do we know how much of a difference that would really make? I mean, it's let's take Omar Mateen for an example. How much do we actually know about the extent to which what he did in the Pulse Club in Orlando was born of his online exploration of the jihadi cause. What we know is what the FBI has shared. And, you know, they said that he was inspired and had had access to a variety of different groups, including some that would be conflicting with each other. But they have said that he was influenced by extremist information and propaganda. He had watched some al-Qaeda videos. Right before the shooting, he called the emergency services in the U.S. to pledge allegiance to the ISIS leader, which was, you know, a bit of a contradiction. But, you know, one thing that people who really study this space also say is that if you're feeling vulnerable, unaccepted, out of place, and one of these things triggers you or catches your attention, even if you never actually interact with anyone in ISIS, there's no evidence so far that he had any communication online or in person with anyone related to ISIS. He just kind of grabbed onto it as cause because he had some other problems that we're all still trying to understand more about. So some people say there really needs to be more of civil groups in the U.S., not this propaganda game, to find who those people are, to get more outreach to them, and maybe reach them before they start looking for this sort of inspiration on the internet. Right, because Erica, there seems to be a a whole range of cases. I'm thinking of the ISIS terrorist attacks in Paris twice last year and in Belgium, in Brussels this year, as well as other instances in Europe and in the US. You're in Beirut, you travel through the region, you have deep expertise on ISIS. Is that fair to say that there are two camps, attacks in Europe that are closely directed and also of others that actually seem to have almost nothing to do with ISIS itself? Absolutely. And I think actually for journalists here in the Middle East, it's sometimes even hard to link the two. When you're talking about attacks like the couple that went on a shooting rampage in San Bernardino or the Orlando incident, these really seem completely unrelated. They don't have any of the markers of people who have really studied ISIS ideology. That's not to say that people who study ISIS ideology are experts in religion, by the way, but there's not even any indication, as you guys have pointed out, of contact. But one thing I want to bring up about the issue of ISIS and its social media outreach is to bring in a little bit of the history of that. 
because I think there's a lot of focus on ISIS has like started this thing, you know, inspiring people. And as Kara mentioned briefly, Al Qaeda actually, I think, played a significant role in generating this outrage, creating interest in it that is sometimes forgotten now that our focus is often on ISIS. Specifically, Al-Qaeda's branch in Yemen, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and Anwar al-Awlaki, who was an American citizen. And if you recall, he actually inspired several attacks on his own without there even being the benefits of Twitter or these very highly produced video messages that ISIS does, solely through the power of his own speeches, as well as a very well-crafted English-language magazine called Inspire, he was able to reach out to Nidal Hassan, who did the attack on U.S. soldiers in Texas, the failed underwear bomber plot. And I really think that he actually pioneered the model that ISIS is using. I mean, I recall from reading Inspire magazine issues in 2011, they had really catchy titles, one like how to make a bomb in the kitchen of your mom. So they were really bringing this along. And ISIS, in a way, has just perfected that model. And obviously things like Twitter and instant messaging sites with encryption like Telegram or WhatsApp, these make the inundation much faster and make it much easier to have a constant stream of this type of messaging. And obviously for law enforcement and intelligence agencies in the West, that creates, I suppose, the possibility of finding electronic traces, communication and other clues to existing cells. But the other approach that seems to be popular outside cyberspace and outside signals intelligence, if you like, is this idea that psychologists, criminal profilers and people like that can form a profile of the kind of person that will become a terrorist because of their various psychological traits, various elements of their background, whatever it might be, that could allow the authorities to say, okay, well, this is the risk group, if you like. This is the kind of people who will be susceptible to online propaganda and other forms of recruitment. As you two do your reporting in the States and in the Middle East, what do you make of this idea that actually that might be a futile endeavour? Kara, you first. Well, I think what the shooting in Orlando showed was that it's incredibly hard to predict if someone is angry or upset as what Mateen appeared to be, you know, um, is going to transform into a vicious killer. There's a long step along the way before someone starts shooting up a nightclub. And the problem here for U.S. authorities is that as much as they monitor things, there is a constitution and you can't just be locked up because you've been mad. You know, there has to be some steps to show that something's going to escalate. And that's where you see the U.S. law enforcement, you know, even reach out to the communities and want them to be more responsive to report people. But for the shooter in Orlando, people did bring to the authorities some concern about what he was saying. And they had an undercover approach him. They had informants approach him. They were trailing him. But Nothing he did at that point for 10 months had indicated that he was going to escalate this. So I don't know that having a profile is necessarily going to work because even if you are monitoring people, you never know when they're going to have a kind of a break and decide to go on a rampage. Sure, sure. But you could make it harder for them to buy assault rifles, I suppose. Right. I mean, that's a different discussion on guns in America and those laws and the tensions between the gun lobby that wants to keep guns in the hands of Americans and those for the Second Amendment, which allows you for the right to bear arms, and those who are in another camp that say that there's absolutely no reason for any civilian to own 
semi-automatic assault rifle. It just seems like there's political gridlock here. There was a basically a sleepover at um, Capitol Hill the other week of Democratic lawmakers who wanted to advance the measure, but there's just not enough support by the Republicans in order to make any changes in the law at this stage. That effort in Congress seems to be um, a real example of how this whole idea that we can profile terrorists filters into all manner of elements of the response to terrorism, such as some of the proposals from legislators in the US, even though a lot of the experts seem to think it's a completely hopeless endeavour to try and build that unique profile. Erica, do we have a picture of the kind of person that ISIS can recruit there in the Middle East? I think there are several models. I don't know whether or not you can say there's a definitive model. I mean, if you think about the range from Osama bin Laden who was extremely wealthy to your average ISIS fighter who was making, you know, around $50 a month and might have lived through extreme poverty. There are obviously all different types of people who are attracted to this. So it's always impossible to know definitively. But that said, I do think in the Middle East there are signs. You know, when you have large underprivileged communities like refugee camps where people are not getting basic services or education, it's a recruiting ground. I don't think there's any way around that. When you live in um, societies like in Tunisia that have a huge disparity of wealth and education, regardless of that person's original viewpoints, you know, in the case of the attacker on the Tunisian beach last year, he liked to listen to music and um, dance. He loved to break dance. And then he ended up becoming, you know, an ISIS militant who attacked people sunbathing on a beach. But what he had in common with a lot of people who do embrace religion early on is this feeling of a disparity and opportunity and wealth. So I do think in the Middle East there are certain factors that definitely do seem to play into that. A second thing I would add is as well discrimination. I think that does play an important role. So in the Middle East, again, there's a lot of discrimination against people who are conservative, conservative in terms of their religious views. That also fuels a turn to radicalization. I think these trends are too strong to ignore as saying that it's impossible to predict. There are certain factors that are clearly indicative, but of course that just cannot encompass all people. And I think actually the bigger thing for ISIS is an appeal to young men, especially, and young women secondly, of this great drama. You can come here and you're going to be part of this life or death struggle. I mean, people like stories and ISIS is amazing at spinning that. Erica Solomon and Karl totally fascinating to listen to you both. For more podcasts, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts or subscribe to FT Investigations on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer today was Fiona Simon. Many thanks for listening.